0: There's always an opportunity to, to lose trust. I think it's the building of it that is harder.
1: I'm Eric Fulweiler, and this is Scratch, bringing you marketing lessons from the leading brands and brains, rewriting the rule book from scratch for the world of today. Hey, everyone. My guest today is Tina K. chief marketing officer at GBH. GBH, for those of you in the U.S., I'm sure you've heard of them. For those of you in the U.K., Europe, or further afield, you might not have. But GBH is the largest creator for public media in America, which includes PBS, NPR, and PRX. So they're uh, national in their scope, but they're locally rooted in Boston, which is where I'm from. So we talk a lot about my nostalgia and awareness with the brand of GBH growing up. And Tina is the CMO. She doesn't come from a traditional marketing background. She has a really interesting, rich career history. She was at the Boston Globe as a reporter for 17 years and then spent time in the agency world and then has been at, at GBH for three years now. She's also written four books and has a TED talk that you can go check out. So we talk about a lot of interesting things. Of course, you know anybody who's listening to this has heard me talk about how I think modern marketing is about building a media company around what you stand for. So it was really interesting to talk to Tina about her background as a journalist and how that shaped how she thinks about her role as a CMO. We also talk about trust, how to build trust as a brand. Um, and how she's been doing that at GBH, how she thinks about that. And then we also talk about the rebrand that she led and went through at GBH as its first CMO. So not just what she did and why she did it, but also the the task of making sure that she got the buy-in from the 900 employees that GBH has and that everybody was really behind what she and the team wanted to do. So, really enjoyed this conversation, bringing me back to my Boston roots with some fascinating advice and perspective for all marketers out there. Please enjoy my conversation with Tina Cassidy. All right, Tina, it's so good to see you. Thank you so much for making the time. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today?
0: It's my pleasure to be here. I'm doing well. Thank you, all things considered.
1: Yeah. You're joining from my hometown of Boston, where I yes. will be. We're recording this December 7th. We're flying home, touch wood, COVID not getting in the way, on December 15th. So I'm excited to be back in Boston.
0: We'll be glad to have you.
1: <laughs> Amazing. Uh, so Tina, maybe we can just start with a little bit about you. So you have, you know, interview a lot of CMOs that come up straight through the marketing ranks. Uh, You have a very interesting background. I know that's something that we're going to talk about a little bit later in the episode, but maybe introduce yourself to our listeners. Tell us a bit about the Tina Cassidy story and how you ended up as CMO of WGBH.
0: Sure. I am a a native of New England and grew up around here my whole life um, working in journalism. Uh, My uh, first job in journalism was um, primarily at the Boston Globe and covered a range of, of beats so I was a reporter and an editor covering everything from sports to politics to um, fashion and left the journalism world around 2005 and went to the agency side. Uh, I had I led a, a number of different practice areas. Mm-hmm and um agency hopped my most recent agency that i was at was called ink house and i was uh, the executive vice president and chief content officer there and what was interesting about ink house which was started around 2008 2009 right around the time that blogging and social media became a thing was that that was an agency that was reinventing public relations and digital marketing and so the fact that um, I came on board to create a content bureau, basically to to sort of set up a, a mini newsroom, if you will, to help tell the stories of our clients, was pretty groundbreaking, and I felt very comfortable in that role, having come out come up out of journalism as well. So that included everything from you know developing infographics and video and. Um, you know, content plans for social media, all of which sound completely normal today. But, uh, you know, over 10 years ago, this was sort of cutting edge.
1: I remember. Um, Yeah.
0: Yeah. And so I then switched from uh, the agency world to become the chief marketing officer at GBH. Uh, That happened about three years ago. So that was my big coming over to, uh, to in journalism, what would be considered the dark side. But but I actually feel like if you are doing marketing for a, a brand that you really believe in and a mission that you care about, it is um, as as personally fulfilling as journalism ever was for me.
1: Yeah. And I also totally.
0: should say, I write nonfiction books on the side. So storytelling is just baked into who I am. It's It's reflexive. I can't help myself. And I enjoy it a lot.
1: I saw that on your website. You've got, how many books have you published? I've written four books and I'm working on a
0: fifth. Yeah.
1: Amazing. Um, But I think it's also, you know, coming from a journalist background, it's not like you've gone to a company that's selling soap or sneakers or shirts. It's like, you know, GBH is one of the largest creators of public media in America. So there is that natural extension I think if you and tell me if you disagree, but you know, it, it seems like almost a that if, if any journalist of 20 plus years was going to go into a marketing role, this seems like a great one to go into, to build on what you've done in the earlier stages of your career.
0: It really is. And it certainly helped also that I had grown up on public media and, and literally had grown up watching, you know. Boston's Channel Two, which is the Boston PBS station. Um, of course, GBH is so much more than a local channel. We are, as you mentioned, the largest creator of content for PBS, uh, and we also uh, run um, NPR stations in Massachusetts.
1: Yep. Yeah, I'm bummed that my kids don't get to grow up with. Well, actually, maybe is there is there like an OTT. Uh, option that we can dial into there must be at this point right there must be i don't know if you get
0: pbs on your tv apps over there but of course everything is available on streaming and depending on your kids ages uh you know you can always watch arthur on uh on the website and there are apps and games and all kinds of really wholesome awesome uh things for kids to watch and, and play with
1: We'll have to check that out. I mean, obviously the BBC is great, but as an American who grew up in Boston, I have a sweet spot for WGBH and PBS and all that. Um, so, so why don't we talk about? You know, we were talking about this a little bit before we hit record, but one of the things that I talk a lot about and that we work with clients on at Rival is this idea of modern marketing actually being more about building a media company around your brand than it is doing the traditional stereotypical advertising. And by that, what I usually mean, because I'm talking to marketers who don't come from a journalist background, so it'll probably be you know an easier thing or more obvious thing for you, it's probably how you think about it already, um, is to me the the biggest difference between a publisher or a media company and an advertiser is how they think about the value exchange with their audience. If you're a journalist, if you're writing a book, if you are a media company, you are focused first and foremost on adding value to the audience you're trying to reach. And again, the stereotypical cliche marketer is more focused on extracting value. So one, do you agree with that? And what are your thoughts? And then two, if so, do you kind of see this um, or how have you thought about your transition from journalism into marketing?
0: Yeah, well, the transition from journalism into marketing was quite easy because I clung to the idea which I think is the right one that ultimately you're telling a story um, and trying to connect to the audiences that um, that that matter most and it's interesting because especially on the agency side you know there was constantly tension between trying to develop a story that would resonate with the potential customer or client of um, you know, Whoever was on our roster at the time, um, and the client wanting to talk about themselves, right? We have the best product. We have, you know, the coolest new thing, and this is, you know, and this is why you should care. Um, as opposed to flipping the story around to to talk about the audience, uh, you know, the end buyer um, or the customer and what they care about. And I think that if marketing is done right, it's it's more about the the audience or the customer than it is about the creator, um, you know, the product maker, um, the service provider. Um, and that I think that tension is always there. It's a natural instinct, right? Like, oh, we created a widget. It's the best widget ever. Check it out. Well, no one cares about your widget. You have to talk about, like, what their pain points are and why they might ever want to consider buying it. Um, or trying it. So, you know, I, I think that that tension will always be there. Um, to your point about, you know, companies and organizations being their own uh, media companies, I, I couldn't agree more. I think that we today really have to think about multi platform stories. You know, it's not just text based information on a website. It's also, you know, uh, thinking about what's the TikTok play and how are you showing up on YouTube and how are you providing opportunities for um, true believers in your product or service to go spread the words on their own, you know, influencer marketing and and all like that. Um, Do you want to pay for influencer marketing versus having it just be um, organic? Do you want to be co-creating products and services? You know, so there's so much more opportunity now, but I think if you start by centering the audience or the customer you're trying to reach, you will be much better off than starting by centering yourself. Meaning yeah. The, the Are you creator.
1: familiar with um, jobs to be done as a framework? Mm-hmm. Clayton Christensen, the innovators oh, no, dilemma. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> so I think about that a lot and I feel really lucky You know, I came up in marketing roles and spent 10 years in advertising agencies, hopping a little bit as well. Um, But the last two and a half years before founding Rival, was basically in a product business. And so it was so enlightening and really stretched my perspective, seeing how, you know, I think was a fantastic team built FinTech products because they're really thinking about exactly what you said, how do i serve the needs of the end consumer, not how can i build something that i think is cool? And that's basically what jobs to be done framework explains and people should go check it out. We can put some info in the show notes. It's um if you've heard the expression people don't need a quarter inch drill, they need a quarter inch hole in the wall. It's exactly that. Nobody cares about the drill, they care about the job that it's actually doing for them. And being in a product business, you know, you kind of realize that good product and good marketing really all come from the same place, which is, does it solve the needs of the audience you're trying to reach? And so I always say, you know, people are like, what's your, what's the best marketing book I can read. I'm like, go read, go read jobs to be done. Go read innovators dilemma, because if you can solve a need for the audience, you're trying to reach, whether you're in a product role or a marketing role, that's the fundamental challenge and opportunity. So understanding that and the perspective that you just explained I think is fundamental to any business being successful with the product they build or the marketing they do.
0: I agree 100%. And I would say that that centering the audience first in product development extends to how that product gets marketed, right? So in sh- really knowing that end user well enough so that you know what media they consume and how they consume it and uh, what their affinity groups are and so forth and you know um, what's gonna move them to make a decision and that all seems obvious, but you know, when when you actually try to go out and do it, you can't just assume that um, you know everyone's driving down the highway looking at a billboard, right? Because they might not own a car, um, you know, and and not be able to see that message in that way.
1: Yep, um, I have two side to take us down, and then we can yeah. come back to the main conversation. So the first is you mentioned TikTok, and for me you know, I'm talking to a lot of marketers on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis. So I kind of get a perspective of the general state of things when it comes to how people are thinking about new platforms, new trends, new topics. I feel like, you know, more people are dipping their toe in the TikTok water. And of course it totally depends on the type of business you're in, but there's still this, oh, it's for younger people. Oh, there's a brand risk potential issue. And like all those things should be considered. Is your audience there? Is it safe for your brand to be there? But I Just the amount of attention and time that's spent on the platform is unbelievable. And in the work that we have done with some clients that have gone in, uh, the organic reach and even some of them really going viral. And I hardly ever use that word because it almost doesn't exist in other platforms that are more mature anymore. So I'd just be curious what your experience has been thinking about TikTok, how you've approached it and what you're doing on it.
0: Great question. TikTok TikTok is really fascinating. You know, I have uh, a son who's right in that age range, <laughs> and yet my my mother is also on TikTok. You know, so it has it has become a thing where people are consuming a lot of time um, and content, um, but. What we have thought a lot about in terms of TikTok, and when I say we, I mean the the GBH brand and and public media in general, is thinking about it as an opportunity to reach young people with um, important information, whether it's information about civics or history or science, you know, all of the content pillars that that our brand is built upon. uh, And how do we do that in a way that's authentic? so that it's not taking information from a documentary series and just recutting it and putting it on TikTok. We know that that won't work, right? So we're thinking about new ways to do that. I think there's a really interesting case study uh, with the Washington Post, they have their TikTok guy who has been, um, he has been viral and really popular to teach younger people just what happens in a newsroom, right? And so, you know, they're not trying to um, convert people to become subscribers on the spot using that TikTok channel. They're merely trying to, you know, help people of a younger generation understand that there's this thing called a newspaper, right? So this is a very different premise. And I think that that, that, that can be an opportunity in and of itself, you know, talking, maybe this is a good segue to talk about how you build trust and how you just build brand awareness. I think TikTok is good for that. You know, it might not have the same conversion rate as, say, Instagram, if you actually want people to click and buy something. But I think it is good as a, a sort of sticky material to get people to, to know about you and to see what you're what you're like. Is this a brand with humor? Is this a brand that I can relate to? Is this a brand that has a voice that sounds like me? You know, are the people talking to me on TikTok like me? Um, And so, you know, there's definitely opportunity there. I think, you know, concocting the right strategy for specific outcomes is, is really where the rubber meets the road. Yeah. What do you want those people following you on TikTok to do?
1: Yeah. And a lot of it comes down to producing content that's contextual to the platform that you're on so exactly like you said you can't just cut up a documentary and put it on there because that content doesn't fit with the platform one of the examples i always throw out there is if you go look up the first tv ad it's literally a radio spot put on tv with a static image it's for a watch company it's fascinating it seems ridiculous but it it's no more ridiculous than taking a documentary or a TV commercial now and putting it on TikTok. It's not contextual for the platform. right? Um, so yeah, I mean, like wherever there, the stuff I come back to with all this is like, really what we're talking about is good marketing fundamentals. You know, the the way in which you execute them on each of these platforms is slightly different, but it's understanding your audience. It's understanding where the attention of your audience is and maybe in a way that your competitors haven't gotten there yet so you can reach it in a more underpriced, more efficient way. And then it's telling stories they care about in a way that's contextual to the platform. It's and so really yeah, true. you gotta, yeah.
0: And I would say that is so important because who knows what's what TikTok is gonna be in three to five years, if it's even gonna exist, if people will be over it in the way that they're over Facebook, right? Um, you know and i think other publishers like like ourselves have feel like you know we've gotten burned by facebook algorithmic changes and you know you invest a lot of time and money and effort into a, a particular platform and they could change the game right out from under you right so just always being aware that it's a dynamic environment and tiktok tiktok might be hot right now but you know who knows what what else is coming
1: yep Here at Rival, we've partnered with Attest, a powerful consumer research platform to start producing our own proprietary research on challenger marketing trends. And you'll hear more about that soon. Each week, in the meantime, we're going to be highlighting a report from a test that adds context to each episode and the guests that we have on. So, for today's conversation with Tina, we wanted to highlight the US media consumption report that a test put out recently. So, in this report, you'll learn that while TV viewing is on a downward trend in 2021, it's good news for radio. Americans listen to more radio in 2021, with just 11% saying they never listen compared to 20% in 2020. To find out more from this report, head on over to askatest.com. Here, you can also run a free survey to access 110 million consumers in 49 markets to remove the guesswork from your business growth. So there's two segues now, because you teed me up very nicely to go down my other sidetrack, and you also teed up how you build trust. So I'm going to take the sidetrack, because I think the trust conversation will be a longer one. And I actually don't know if this sidetrack is interesting. You tell me. I'd be curious to hear how you're thinking about first-party data when it comes to what you just said about how platforms can change the algorithms whenever they want, they actually own the relationship with the customer you don't, but also as you're thinking about OTT and you mentioned at the very beginning, you know, there's the app where you can get the content directly. And just as we transition into kind of a increasingly post cookie less third-party data world, how does that fit into the mind mapping of you as a CMO?
0: Well, I feel like we're really lucky as a media organization because we own a lot of our channels. Uh, literally, own our own channels, right? So we have, a, we have two broad, we have a number of broadcast channels. We have multiple websites. We have multiple social channels. Which I get that there's other pe- there's data streams related to those, but. Um, you know, we have our own YouTube channels and so forth. Again, that that has other algorithmic aspects to it. We have lots of email newsletters. So there's a lot that we can control. And I think that, you know, what we're really leaning into is the things that we can control, um, because I think that will serve us the best in the long run. You know, making sure that uh, we're also a member organization, right? So making sure that we are collecting emails in a comfortable and responsible way. And, you know, making sure that when we're collecting data, it's, it's really just to make sure that we can serve our members in a way that they want to be served. So they want to know when, you know, there's a new documentary series coming out or, um, you know, some other important uh, program. Um, You know, I think even the fact that cookies are, are going away is, is, it you know gets back to this point that the the sort of the landscape beyond what we can control is constantly changing and so if you just double down on what you what you can do for yourself um i think that that's a really good place to start um you know the data question is related to trust and i don't mean to just drag us down the, the you know, to the trust conversation, but I, I do think it's important because, you know, we, we think a lot about what information we might, might want to collect. You know, if, if you're a member, you're giving us your credit card number and your address and, and your email. Um, and we are complete, of course, completely proprietary about that. Um, you know, I think people have really woken up to what kind of information they're, they're, giving up by being on certain social platforms. I think people are um, becoming quite wary about, you know, location data and and everything else that, um, you know, we have given up in, in exchange for free services, whether it's, you know, search or connecting with our friends. Um, so I think that as that evolves um, and we move even into this other new phase of the internet called, you know, the metaverse that, um, we just have to be really careful. I think what the last thing that we want is for our members, our audiences, to, to um, not trust us with their information. Um, and I think that, that that very fact prevents us from collecting more data. We, we kind of say, okay, that's sort of all we need. We don't need any more. Um, you know, although data is very helpful for, for us as an organization to make decisions about, you know, what are people watching and listening to and, um, you know, what's the average age? And we have we have information like that. Um, and and, you know, being a nonprofit, being a non-commercial entity is helpful because we're all we're trying to do is sell um, information. Right. We're, we're offering we're not even selling it. We are offering for free. Um, educational programming to our viewers and listeners. Yep. It's a little bit different.
1: Well, it it sounds like a lot of what you're saying actually ties into what we were talking about with jobs to be done and understanding your audience and adding value. It's collecting data for the purpose of adding value as opposed to for the purpose of having more or your own commercial purposes. And actually the nonprofit piece, would be curious how that weaves into the conversation around trust, which, yes, let's go to that. I was just checking my notes, even though your comment about the metaverse is a very tempting sidetrack. Let's talk about trust. So uh, GBH's, GBH's mission statement is, we are a trusted source of content that promotes educational equity, delights its audiences, and inspires everyone to engage with the world around them. Trust is the fourth word, the first meaningful word. So obviously it's important. As CMO, how do you think about trust, building trust, keeping trust? How does that fit into what you do?
0: That is really the the most important thing that I think about because this is a brand built on trust, 70 years of trust, right? PBS and NPR also among the most trusted brands in America. So we I inherited this legacy of trust at a time when people all over the world are trusting media less, right? And so how do we retain the trust? How do we instill trust with a new generation that might not own a television, might not own a car, and therefore is not listening to traditional radio and is getting all of their information from TikTok or Instagram? Right. So this is this is our challenge. It requires, I think, a lot of different tactics, um, you know, to build trust over 70 years for a brand like that's a long, hard job to do. And we could lose it in a day if, you know, we had a producer who had factual inaccuracies in a frontline story or who. Um, you know, made a, made a mistake or said something awry on air. So there's always an opportunity to to lose trust. I think it's the building of it that is harder. Um, you know, so I, I think co-creating content, really understanding our audiences and making sure that we are giving them what they want because if they think that they see themselves in our content, it it feels more for them and they can trust it and believe it and want to share it with their own community. Um, I think that those are sort of some of the basics um, and that can even be portrayed in the marketing that we do. So showing the representation of our community, feeling authentic, um, not telling people what they should know, watch, listen to, but understanding what they have asked for and then providing it is, is fundamental to building trust.
1: Yeah, I was actually gonna ask, you know, if there were any learnings or recommendations you could make to people who, you know, might be in a different type of business or might be at a different level where they're not the CMO but do believe in trying to build trust. But I think you just kind of touched on it there. Is there anything else that you would share for someone who believes the trust is important, wants to build that with the marketing activity they're doing, but maybe it's not as inherently part of the business as it is at GBH, or maybe they're not in the CMO seat where they can fully control everything that goes out.
0: I don't think you have to be in the CMO seat at all. I think, you know, being, creating a trustworthy brand is probably related to the values that a company or organization is built upon. Even ha- making sure you have values Um and that the employees know what those values are and they live it every day, you know, because trust can show up in lots of different ways. You know, do people trust your product? Do people trust um, your marketing promise? Do people trust that you're a good organization paying your employees fairly, that you're not polluting the environment? You know, these are all things that customers care about today. You know, what kind of company am I even buying my product or service from? Um, I think communicating that, being transparent, um, and that really does come from, I would say, you know, the CEO all the way down to the frontline workers is important. How do you tell the story of what you believe as an organization? And then how do you back it up? Um, You know, certainly um, with the focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion in recent years, even publishing hiring statistics, retention statistics, um, you know, how, how can you be transparent as an organization about the things that you care about? You know, if you state that you are, you know, a steward of the environment, like, don't just say that, show your customers how you're doing it. How many trees are you planting? What's your carbon offset policy, right? And, and I think that all of those things combined can really help to build trust.
1: Sounds like this might be a perfect segue into the third topic we wanted to talk about, which is the rebrands that you led for WGBH and your thoughts on kind of rebranding and building a modern, effective brand in general. So do you want to talk about that a little bit?
0: Sure. I arrived at GBH um, a little less than three years ago and was I was, I'm the first chief marketing officer here, which I think just says a lot about how much the world is changing, right? The, the media landscape is becoming much more fragmented, uh, and this organization needed a strategy and a dedicated effort to ensure that we are connecting with our target audiences. And as I looked at the research and, uh, and the data and you know, tried to figure out who we want to be as an organization, how we wanted to show up as a brand. It was clear that we were, our name, which was WGBH, was really tied to broadcast. The W in WGBH um, was a product of our um, broadcast license. So the, uh, the FCC would give Broadcast licenses east of the Mississippi, a W, and west of the Mississippi would get a K. And then the last three letters of that broadcast construct were usually related to place. So GBH stands for Great Blue Hill, which is the place where our broadcast tower is. So I thought, huh, that's really interesting. Here we are, a 70 year old uh, beloved legacy brand based on this broadcasting construct. And yet we are available for streaming audio video web Um, you know we're a completely digital organization now more than half of our impressions are digital so why are we showing up like a legacy broadcast brand Um, so we did decide to drop the W and just keep GBH it also we changed our colors to make it more uh, visible and to pop on um, on small screens and in a social scroll uh, our old color, we're purple now. Our old color was a sort of blue, more of a corporate blue. And, you know, we also want to be portrayed this sort of vibrant, friendly energy. Um, and purple also helped us do that. So uh, we, we so we, we we did more than just drop the W and change our color, though. You know, We also decided that um, from a look and feel of the logo itself, that there were some things that the old logo had going for it. We have this funky drop shadow that was unique. Um, we decided to keep that because we wanted to continue that sense of trust and continuity. We wanted people to know, yes, this is that GBH you've known your whole life um, and that you've seen at the end of... Arthur uh, or Zoom or Masterpiece um, and, and, you know, but we're evolving. So it was important for us to send that message that we are evolving. And for our brand refresh launch campaign, we um, added the tagline beyond broadcast. So, you know, while the bulk of our audience is still tuning in on traditional broadcasts, Um, channels. uh, The opportunity for us really is um, in in ensuring that people know we're available in other places as well.
1: I just realized I've been saying it wrong this whole time. It's just so (laughs) ingrained in me growing up.
0: Drop the W. It totally makes sense. it's okay because um, I mean technically our our broadcast license still has the W in it, and on radio we still have to say WGBH okay. at the top of every hour, and that's okay. It's kind
1: of like radio, yeah.
0: Yeah, but you know <laughs> people who have known our brand for a long time have have called yeah. us G B H forever because it's just like it's yeah. the local vernacular, right? It's the friendly. Uh, this is a brand I know. It's like saying Coke instead of Coca Cola. And, and we've had a
1: commonwealth avenue. Yep. Yeah.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Um, I want to ask a follow up question to that, which is you know, I think for any CMO or really any marketer, but increasingly as you get more senior, a lot of the role is about getting people behind what you want to do. And so, particularly in an organization where there wasn't a CMO before, I'm curious how you know, I'm guessing you probably wouldn't have taken the role if there wasn't some confidence that there was a real mandate to do marketing and branding differently. But uh, how hard was it or how did you approach kind of the internal component of doing that rebrand, getting stakeholders on board, and not just the kind of getting approval for things, but actually getting people excited and fired up and bought into and engaged with what you were trying to do?
0: It took a long time to... um first decide whether this was even a road we should go down. Uh, you know, I didn't want to be that CMO that came in and changed a, a legacy, a beloved legacy brand. Um, but when we looked at the data and sort of came up with the idea, we worked with an outside agency called Manelli, and they were great. Um, we, we thought there's no way we can even unsee this. We have to change our name now, right? It makes perfect sense. We took about six months to methodically build the case, share the case, get feedback. Um, We had a a very thorough process with internal stakeholders, checking in with key external stakeholders to make sure that, you know, this made sense, that they were comfortable with it, and that they were actually excited about it. And the the across-the-board response was overwhelmingly positive. And, of course, we could not have done this without the approval of you know, senior leadership, the CEO, the COO, our board, um, etc. So they were ecstatic and they understood that this was tied to the strategy of the organization moving forward. It wasn't just an aesthetic change or something meant to show we have a new owner. This was very much the core of the strategy for this organization. So, you know, I think that it's a good lesson, no matter what you're trying to change. Um, you know, meeting with people in groups of three, five, ten, and sometimes fifty, you know, you kind of have to build your way up to that um and and getting people excited and and read in is is so important because if we had just like flipped a switch one day and dumped this brand on nine hundred employees at GBH, they would have said, like, what is this? What happened to this thing that I loved? you know, so, Making the case, bringing them along, that's sort of what change management is all
1: about. Amazing.
0: And of course well, we think... had to bring our members, our audiences uh, around as well. And there was a, that's where the campaign comes in, making sure it's easily digestible.
1: Well, I'm gonna ask, I'll ask my parents and I'll ask my in-laws when we get back about the brand change, see what they think. A uh, very opinionated focus group of four <laughs> they are. Um, cool, well, I think that's a good place to wrap it. Tina, is there any, anything else you want to share? Or any um, if people want to get in touch or find out more about what you're doing, where do you want to send them?
0: Well, people can certainly email me, tina underscore Cassidy at WGBH.org, or you can um, follow our, our social handles if you're more interested in the brand, and that is at GBH.
1: Definitely gonna follow you on TikTok now. For sure. <laughs> okay, great. All right, Tina, thank you so much for doing this. It was great to have this chat. Appreciate you making the time.
0: Thank you too. It was a pleasure.
1: Scratch is a production of Rival we are a marketing innovation consultancy that helps businesses develop strategies and capabilities to grow faster. If you want to learn more about us, check out wearerival.com. If you want to connect with me, email me at eric at or find me on LinkedIn. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe, share with anyone you think might enjoy it, and please do leave us a review. Thanks for listening and see you next week.